Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather Charlie Chaplin and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. It's your programme about money, work and the economy. I'm Sam Fennick. Coming up today, despite a heavy loss in the South Carolina primary, money is still rolling in for Nikki Haley's bid for the White House. You'll hear from one of her donors. Meanwhile, a billion-dollar donation to a New York medical school means hundreds of students will graduate debt-free. Also today... Honestly, it's very stupid of them because it's a global price now. Global price on grain are low, not because of the war in Ukraine, not because of Ukrainian, it's because of low prices in the world. Tons and tons of Ukrainian grain has been destroyed because Polish farmers say they're not getting a fair price for the produce they grow. And two big supermarket chains in the US have been blocked from merging. We'll talk about what that means for shoppers. That's all coming up here on World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Our first story today is the continued protests by farmers across the European Union. Today, Monday, they clashed with police in the Belgian capital, Brussels. They drove tractors into the heart of the city, causing chaos close to the EU's headquarters, where agriculture ministers were meeting to discuss the crisis. Police responded with water cannon to douse burning tyres. Farmers are angry at issues including low food prices, cheap imports and new EU environmental measures. One of the organisers of the protests, Morgan Oddy, says the EU needs to take them seriously. The European Union doesn't listen to us, the small farmers. Organisations have been asking for a meeting with Commission President von der Leyen for a month now and she hasn't given us a date. We're not being listened to. As a result, they are announcing measures that are completely off the mark and do not respond to the main demand of all farmers, which is that we want an income for our work. Farmers from across Europe joined the protests in Brussels. Our correspondent Nick Beek spoke to a Czech farmer. We're able farmers from Czech Republic. We do all sorts of grains, uh, cereals, you know, uh, rapeseeds and things like that, you know. And it's become really hard to sell our produce, you know, because of uh, all the imports. It's not just from Ukraine, but it's also from uh, Southern America. It's also from Russia, you know. And, and the thing is that the European Union demands a lot of, from farmers, you know, when it comes to protecting the environment, you know, and that uh, actually drives the costs up. You know, it's really hard for us to sell our produce right now. And what do you say to people who say for a long time now, a lot of European farmers have had subsidies, 
support. You know, they shouldn't complain too much. Finger subsidies, it comes with a real tight bureaucracy, you know. It's really hard for farmers to actually work in the field, you know, and work in stables and then come sit at the computer for several hours just to fill in the forms, which nobody actually reads in at the end. So, so this is one of the problems. And also the subsidies are quite low right now, uh, not just in Czech Republic, but through all of Europe, because it's the same level as it was in 2014. And uh, the inflation for, uh, since then has been like 30-40%. Everything has gone up and it just uh, doesn't cover the costs anymore. In Poland, farmers have directed their anger towards Ukraine. They say that they face unfair competition from Kyiv and that Ukrainian farmers are undercutting prices. So in retaliation, they've blocked border crossings and motorways and sabotaged train cargoes. This weekend, 160 tonnes of Ukrainian grain were destroyed at Polish railway stations. The Ukrainian government says that those responsible must be punished. Well, earlier I spoke to the chairman of the Ukrainian Farmers Association, Andrei Daikon, and he says that the financial loss is small compared to what it symbolises. Honestly, my attention and my farmers and my people, we are more focused on our eastern borders because we have this war with Russians and it's really big, big, big problem. As for the Polish, I don't understand why farmers in Poland or EU against Ukrainian grain. And for me, it sounds really very strange. And I cannot understand the position of the Polish president, Polish government, Polish police, because what they do is completely illegal. This grain was not going to Poland. This grain was going to German and Lithuanian ports. And they on the railway stations, it's a crime. They should be punished for that. It should not be like this. And the president is saying, like Polish president is saying something like, oh, Polish farmers are feeling bad. If you think they're feeling bad, they should come to the east of Ukraine to feel what is real bad. The Polish farmers say that they are concerned about imports coming into their country being sold at a lower price than their grain. Can you understand that? Honestly, it's very stupid of them because it's a global price now. Global price on grain are low. Yes, when the war started and Black Sea ports were blocked, the price for the grain in the world were rising. Polish farmers two years ago at that time they had extremely high prices. But now it's global prices. Global prices are low, not because of Ukraine. And actually it's good for Polish, for example, for Polish dairy sector. 40% of cheese which is sold in Ukraine is from Poland. Meat from Poland, sausages from Poland. And we understand. In recent weeks, I understand that there have been protests at the border and clearing customs can take up to two weeks. That can't be good for your members either, can it? Actually, the export to Poland and through the Poland is not very essential to Ukraine. The most important for us is Odessa and Black Sea Corridor. This is the main gate for our export, not Polish border. If tomorrow, for example, all exports through the Polish border will stop, nothing happened to Ukraine. Almost nothing. It's not so important economically, but politically is something like unbelievable for us because it's like, what, what is all about? I think that Poland they did a big mistake because they have too many small farmers. It is not efficient. Small farming is not efficient at all. They all get subsidies. We never get subsidies in Ukraine. Polish farmers get subsidies, but this year is difficult for them because world prices are very low. Not because of the war in Ukraine, not because of Ukrainian it's because of low prices in the world. And it's difficult year for them, so they decided to find how to press on Brussels to get more money for them. They can push on their government, but their government says, okay, don't push on us, better push on Ukraine and Brussels, and let's wait, and maybe Brussels will give more money to you, Polish farmers, to give up in this protest. That's my, that's my opinion. 
How much of Ukraine's grain is now going out through the Black Sea? In uh, January, for example, it was the same amount as in January 22. We are now on the level which was before the war, which is good for Ukraine. So we don't need Polish market at all. But some farmers who are very close to the western border of Ukraine, of course, for them, it's more economically to sell their product to Baltic seaports, for example. Not to Poland, to Baltic seaports. But now I think they will stop it and they will send the grain to Black Sea. Yes, it would be more expensive for them, but we have no choice with such neighbors as Poland. And how safe is it going out through the Black Sea? <laughs> Good question, but it works. Since September last year, it works. The only problem is Odessa because every night uh, Russians, they attack Black Sea infrastructure. They attack this infrastructure every night. So to be honest, the biggest concern for us is the war because Russia is getting stronger and we do not have enough weapon. And if they can go to Odessa, that would be the end for us because Black Sea grain corridor is very important. Agricultural sector today in Ukraine, it, before the war, it was 20% of GDP. Now, metallurgical sector is almost destroyed. Chemical sector is almost destroyed. And the main vehicle of economy of Ukraine today is agricultural sector. And grain seaports is more essential than to talk about this disgusting thing which is now on Polish border. So it really is very important that the grain gets out of Ukraine so that you can get a good price for it. It's not a good price. Even we have Black Sea Corridor, but it's a global price. We cannot do anything about this. We have possibility to export because we have strong army at the moment. Our ports are protected. And that's what we are praying for, that we really need this. It is extremely important. And Andre, I believe you're speaking to me from inside a shelter because there are where you are, there are rocket attacks as we speak. The rocket attack every day, a few times a day on the whole territory of Ukraine. Are you scared? No. Not anymore. And every day we send trucks to army. As a farmer's union, we buy trucks every day. We buy even uh, pickup trucks from Britain. There are people in UK who wants to help Ukrainian farmers in demining and fighting with Russians. We need thousands of pickups, to be honest. Because we, we have farmers who are on occupied territories. And we know what is Russian peace, as they call you know what is when Russians arrive to your house, to your village, to your town, to your city. It's we need to fight. That was Andre Daikon from the um, Ukraine Farmers Association. Let's pick on pick up on some of the points that Andre was talking about there. The global prices of grain. Uh, today we're joined on the program by Peter Jankowskis. He's vice president of research and analysis at Arbor Financial Services. So, Peter, thanks for coming on. How much confidence is there in the global grain supply and what is that doing to prices? Well, I think what we're seeing is echo effects of the shortage that occurred in 2022 after the Russian invasion. Uh, As the speaker indicated, you know, shipments were cut off at that point. Uh, There were tremendous shortages. Prices spiked. But as always, when those sorts of spikes occur, people adapt what they're planting. And, uh, you know, so many people planted wheat to try to replace that, that we now have a glut that's brought down world prices. Is that then kind of working into the farmers across Europe and other parts of the world who are protesting over the prices of the food that they're getting? Absolutely. You know, uh, they, uh, they, they were able to get higher prices uh, a few years ago. Uh, the prices they're getting now dropped. Inflation has picked up. So they're all you know, being under tremendous pressure uh, to meet their own individual budgets. So it's not surprising that they're complaining, but 
uh, Ukraine at the moment is not not the source of that problem. Uh, it's kind of an overall world supply issue, uh, as the speaker indicated. Peter, stay with us. We will come and talk to you again uh, in a few moments' time. At the moment, if you download an app on your phone from a company which is based in another country, then you won't have to pay any taxes or tariffs on it. But that might be about to change. A moratorium on cross-border trade is about to expire. Trade ministers are hoping that it will be extended and they're talking about how to do that this week at the World Trade Organization meeting, which is in Abu Dhabi. Marco Fiorgione is the head of the UK's in. Institute for Export and International Trade, and he's in Abu Dhabi. And I asked him to explain what the moratorium is and what's the stake for consumers. The moratorium is an agreement that nations won't charge uh, tariffs or tax on the cross-border transfer of data or information. And it's been in place for a number of years, but is due to expire at the conclusion of this ministerial conference meeting. And there's a lot of concern that some of the larger developing nations are not going to agree to the moratorium continuing, which would, of course, then create an unstable and uncertain future with regards to how trade, particularly services, but also digital e-commerce can take place across borders. When you talk about cross-border transfer of data, can you in simple terms just describe what you mean by that? So your social media or your various social media apps allow for the transfer of data. If you are sharing technical drawings across the internet, that's a transfer of data across borders. So it's anything really that impacts both consumer life, but also business to business trade. And so products that we might buy as well, that they might be affected by this. Yeah, so if you're buying a piece of software and downloading it from the cloud, that's a transfer of data. If you're buying a product from one of the e-marketplaces or platforms, that requires a transfer of data. Or if, for instance, you are an architect's firm and you want to share your designs or draft designs with a client in another country, that is also a data transfer. So, So the moratorium is a really fundamental part of the global trading system, but more importantly, with the growing digitalization of international trade will become even more important in the years ahead. And you said that some countries don't want to renew it. Who are they and why don't they want to renew it? Well, there are a number of nations, the key ones of which are India, Indonesia, South Africa. And there's a sense in some of these nations that their homegrown technology companies are at a disadvantage compared to the more advanced nations. So, so they themselves feel that this moratorium penalises their businesses and their tech sector. The OECD has done a piece of research shows that if the moratorium were to cease, particularly the lesser developed countries would see their imports reduced by about 35% and their exports by about 3%. So the moratorium is a really key part of the global trading system and continuing the moratorium is really essential. I believe this could be the first time that we'd be in this situation since 1998, which was a very different world, yes, wasn't it? So th- exactly that. So the last time that tariffs and tax was applied to cross-border trade was in 1998. 
decades. And of course, the world has transformed digitally since then. And there is a growing pressure on the global supply chain and global trading environment and consumer demand for even greater digitalization and greater use of tech-based solutions for a whole host of consumer business and personal uses. How worrying is it that this moratorium won't be renewed? Look, the moratorium is part of a negotiation. And when it comes to the World Trade Organization, there is always in advance a lot of manoeuvring and posturing. We are hopeful that progress can be made. Those countries that you mentioned, how can they be brought on side? What guarantees can you give those countries? The issues are are dealt with in a negotiation. So I'm confident that in the worst case scenario, it will be a continuation for now, but with a timeline to find a more formal, more comprehensive resolution at future ministerial conferences. The Global Story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One Global Story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service with me, Sam Fennick. Now we're going to have a look at the fallout from Saturday's South Carolina primary election. Americans for Prosperity Action, a political spending group backed by influential conservative billionaire Charles Koch, has stopped funding Nikki Haley's presidential campaign following her heavy defeat to Donald Trump over the weekend in her home state. Now, Ms. Haley has vowed to press ahead with her campaign until at least Super Tuesday, which is next week. And donations are still pouring in for her. Let's talk to one of her donors, uh, Ozzy Palomo. He is co-founder and managing director of Chartwell Strategy Group, joins us from Boston. Thank you very much for coming on the programme, Ozzy. First of all, tell us, why did you donate to Nikki Haley's fund? And will you continue? Now. Well, thank you for having me, Sam. I appreciate it. And yeah, certainly from a personal perspective, I really thought that the platform that Nikki ran on or is running on, excuse me, uh, was quite compelling as far as what the Republican Party should be focusing on heading into this uh, 2024 presidential cycle. We're coming off of numerous uh, election cycles here in the U.S. where the Republican Party has underperformed or outright lost. And I thought that what Nikki was able to bring to the table uh, was compelling enough to get the party back on track and, and onto a winning record. Uh, yeah, as we've seen in the primary, she's she's not doing that well, yet donations are still coming in. And I think a million dollars has been donated over the weekend since that defeat by Donald Trump. So what does that tell us? Yeah, look, I think obviously she has not won a state yet, either neither Iowa, New Hampshire or South Carolina. Um, but she is defying expectations and outperforming where the polls are leading into actual uh, votes. So I think she's got something uh, cooking that I think the vast majority of her supporters are kind of pulling behind. And it's a narrative that I think is compelling enough for that support to continue moving forward. You referenced the million dollars uh, overnight from her speech in South Carolina Saturday into this uh, Sunday morning. 
And I think that's telling that, you know, these are not multi-billion dollar uh, contributions. They're small dollar contributions that are coming from across the country. So I think she either, you know, inadvertently or directly stumbled upon a movement that is comprised of, you know, conservative Republicans, more of the Reagan mold uh, and independents and moderate Democrats that are looking for an alternative to Donald Trump and uh, President Biden. She said that she's going to hang on until Super Tuesday, which is next week. Um, why is she doing that? Yeah, look, I think she's now viewing this as a much larger mission to kind of put uh, a compelling, you know, difference uh, out there for folks to kind of decide what they stand for going into 2024 and beyond. And I think you referenced the Koch brothers and the AFP uh, pulling their support. They weren't the, certainly a significant backer of the Haley campaign, but not the only group supporting her or donors across the country. But I think she views this as a much larger fight for the soul of the Republican Party. Uh, and to give folks, you know, 70% of people out there today don't want a rematch of 2020. And I think, you know, 59% of the folks out there think that both candidates are a little bit past their prime. And I think she finds it important to continue to put that option on the table uh, until there's no more gas left in the tank and, and the campaign runs out of steam or something happens on Super Tuesday where she keeps on going. What could that thing be that happens on Super Tuesday that allows her to keep going? Yeah, look, I think Super Tuesday states, all 14 of them, plus the territories that vote uh, are all a little bit different. The electorate's a little bit different in each state, but certainly it's a more um, it's an electorate that's more appealing for, for the Haley campaign. There are more suburban voters, independent voters, highly educated uh, middle class voters, etc., uh, and I think they feel like they can have a play to, for about two thirds of those delegates going forward, whether or not that, you know, comes to truth, you know, to be seen next Tuesday evening. Um, but I think she feels like she's got a chance and she's going to keep going. At the start of February, her campaign had about $13 million on hand, um, which is which was how much was spent in January, I think. How much more might she need to keep going maybe beyond Super Tuesday if, if that actually does happen for her? Yeah, I, I don't have new uh, insight into where the, the coffers are today. Uh, I do know that they had Super Tuesday buys and they amped up some of them going uh, past South Carolina. I know that they're spending quite a bit of money in Michigan ahead of the Michigan primary tomorrow. Yep. And they've made some calculated budgetary moves here to be able to play in all 14 electoral uh, competitions next week. Uh, but beyond that, you know, they haven't reported any new numbers as of yet. Um, but I think they have enough to at least get them to Super Tuesday and hopefully she performs and goes beyond. And Ozzy, may I ask just one final question? Will you be donating any more money to her fund? So legally, I think I am tapped out, um, <laughs> but I am, I, I am doing my part to continue to help her put the message out there uh, and give, you know, give voters a choice about you know, that there's an alternative to the other two. Ozzy Palomo, thank you very much for joining us here on World Business Report. Now, the U.S. competition watchdog, the FTC, is trying to block a merger between two of the United States' biggest grocery stores. Kroger wants to acquire Albertsons. The FTC said the merger would would create an entity that would operate 5,000 stores, 4,000 retail pharmacies, employing nearly 700,000 staff over 48 states. Peter Jankowskis is still with us. What are the concerns then of the FTC with regard to this deal? Well, the FTC is uh, concerned that the combination of these two firms is, is going to raise prices uh, and also lower wages for, for workers in the supermarket industry. But uh, I think they are missing the point in terms of who the largest competitors are in this space. Uh, it's not uh, Kroger and Albertsons. It's, it's Walmart uh, and Costco. 
And, uh, you know, basically those firms are are squeezing firms like Kroger and Albertson and they need to combine to be able to compete effectively. And they say, don't they, that they can, you know, get better volumes for, buy more volume for a better price, therefore lower prices for consumers if they can merge together. That's correct. Yes, that's their argument. And we'll have to see how this plays out uh, in court. Uh, the FTC has been very aggressive the last few years with with trying to block mergers, most recently JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. Um, so uh, it'll be up to the courts to decide in the end. Why is the FTC so um, rigorous, I suppose, on, on these mergers? Because you, you, we're talking about this grocery store. You've mentioned another one. I think they were also sort of being told that they were a bit too robust, perhaps, in the activation blizzard uh, Microsoft deal. That's correct. Yes. And it, it all comes down to the uh, appointed leadership that, that comes with each presidential administration. Uh, the Biden administration wanted to place an emphasis on antitrust. And uh, so they appointed a, a very aggressive leader to the FTC. Um, you know, the past few decades, uh, the FTC hasn't been as aggressive. So um, we're, we're seeing the results of that. They are they are filing more attempts to block and uh, it still comes down to something that has to play out in the court. Thank you very much for explaining that. That's Peter Jankowskis joining us today on World Business Report. Now we're going to move to our final story for today. Uh, Now imagine being told that you no longer had to pay thousands of dollars in tuition fees, that the bill had been paid for and that you were going to graduate debt-free. Well, that's exactly what's happened to hundreds of medical students at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx in New York. The university has received a billion-dollar donation, and that's the largest made to a university in the United States. Here's the moment they found out. I'm happy to share with you that starting in August this year, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine will be (laughs) tuition-free. So that was the moment that all the students found out. You can certainly hear how happy they are. Uh, The money was donated by Dr. Ruth Gotsman, the 90-year-old widow of American businessman David Sandy Gotsman. With me now is a social justice philanthropist, Molly Schultz-Hafid. Molly, what do you make of this? donation. What a wonderful clip. Oh, the joy of that. I would have loved to have been in the audience. I think it's phenomenal. I mean, it's really wonderful to focus in on um, dedicating the gift to pay student debt. When you think about the impact that average medical student in the U.S. graduates with around 200000 in medical medical school debt, and if you include their undergraduate loans, it goes up to around 250000 So to imagine being able to be debt-free uh, through your medical career, uh, through your medical studies, is it, it, it transforms, I'm sure, for those students, their long-term financial health, but also probably frees them to have different kind of options for where they practice medicine, where they choose to live. Maybe they can move to places where folks are less well-served because they don't have to focus on the highest-paying um, specialties or markets. So it's a extraordinary. It's a really incredible gift. It was such a delight to read about it. The thing that struck me about it was that the social mobility that it mm-hmm. might then introduce, and you hit upon mm-hmm. it a little bit there in your in your last answer, that. 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's really important, I think, to note that the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, from what I was able to see, is actually has above average enrollment of Black, Latino and Asian Pacific Islander students. So the gift is especially significant because when you consider that the highest student loan debt burdens fall to Black and Latino medical students, it's extraordinary to see that sort of um, social and economic mobility and, and a real focus on a school that has such a diverse uh, student population. So it's really just a, a delight to, to have um, seen and, and learned about today. It's a, definitely a piece of good news. How often do we see donations going to universities in the United States? Oh, well, that's a really great question. It's, a, it's, a, it's an area where there's actually a, quite a few mega gifts. And I do think it may be the largest gift for student loans. There has been at least one other billion dollar, over billion dollar donation to John Hopkins a few years ago, one of our other big medical schools. There's a, a lot of gifts that are in the 500, 600, 700 million dollar range. And they tend to be to large, well-established universities that have significant endowments. The gifts tend to go to research or capital campaigns. Yeah, rather than individual at, students here. Exactly, which is what well, makes it, this remarkable. Thank you so much for joining us today on World Business Report. That brings us to the end of the programme. Thank you very, very much for listening. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Oh.